I am Gregory Hallows, and you are listening to Preserve Halloween Podcast. So, this is the week of Thanksgiving as I'm recording this, and I've been reading a lot of articles online, and I one particular article kind of struck my eye, or caught my eye. I'm glad it didn't strike my eye. It was about ghost stories, and it made me want to uh, delve into that a little bit more, so I was immediately looked into ghost stories and and their significance with this time of the year and how that has evolved uh, over the years from primarily people thinking Halloween is, you know, the time for ghost stories. But back in the day, that was Christmas time. Christmas time was the time for ghost stories to be told and for people to share their ghost stories. So, So I'll start off this week's podcast with a line from Probably a song that we will all hear a multitude of times for the next month or so. It's the song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. And in it, Andy Williams sings, There'll be ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. And it's one of those lines that I guess when you hear the song, you don't really think about it. It's like, did he really just sing about ghost stories for Christmas? That's, you know... But alas, yes, Virginia, he is singing about ghost stories. And I guess to understand the who, what, when, where, why, and how of telling ghost stories around Christmas time, you first need to understand the history and the origins of the holiday itself. Um, Many in the world recognize December 25th as a Christian-based holiday, and they uh, it's primarily held for the observance and celebration of the birth of Jesus. But the origins of of the time go back to pagan winter solstice celebrations and Yule festivals that predated both Jesus and Christianity. As stated in a variety of historical research, it's widely believed that although the Christian church may or may not have tried their best to distinguish themselves from existing pagan beliefs and practices— Uh, creating a day of religious importance around the same time as traditional winter solstice festivals wasn't an accident. And one of the thought processes behind the decision was that it would help increase the chances that Christmas and ultimately Christianity would be more easily embraced by the people. But many of the other reasons for the decisions to get rid of pagan practices are way less diplomatic, but uh, we'll... (laughs) discuss that at another time. One of the traditions which carried over from these earlier pagan beliefs and practices was the telling of ghost stories. Winter days ending early and resulting in longer nights and darkness can naturally lend itself to spooky tales. Uh, Many pagan beliefs suggested that during the winter solstice the dead could easily more uh, cross into the living world and others explained the darkening of the days with tales of ethereal beings, gods, and monsters. The practice of sharing stories has spanned centuries, with many of the winner's tales references as early as 1589 in Christopher Marlowe's play The Jew of Malta. One of those lines is, Now I remember those old woman's words, who in my wealth would tell me winter's tales and speak of spirits and ghosts by night. And Shakespeare mentions uh, ghost stories in The Winter's Tale when uh, Mamelius proclaims a sad tale's best for winter. I have one of sprites and goblins. 
Uh, the great Washington Irving helped resurrect a number of forgotten Christmas traditions in the early 19th century, including stories based in folklore and the supernatural. But this was a tradition that uh, Puritans in America did not actually like. So ghost stories in America never really caught on. But the ghost story at Christmas time really hit the mainstream in England when Mr. Charles Dickens published A Christmas Carol in prose being a ghost story of Christmas, which we commonly know as simply A Christmas Carol. He published this in London by Chapman and Hall in 1843. Now, A Christmas Carol recounts the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, who was an older guy who was a miser, you know, penny pincher, uh, he's visited by the ghost of his former business partner, Jacob Marley, and also the spirits of Christmas past, present, and yet to come. And after their visit, Scrooge is magically transformed into a kinder, kinder gentler man. Um, Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol during a period when British were exploring and reevaluating past Christmas traditions. In fact, Christmas was kind of fading I've, I read a quote that, For most people, it was still a work day. The Industrial Revolution meant fewer days off for everyone, and Christmas was considered so unimportant that no one complained. Uh, the, the decline of the holiday came courtesy of a Oliver Cromwell, who was the lord and protector of England in the 17th century, also a Puritan, who, according to Clemency Burton Hill for The Guardian, was, quote, on a mission to cleanse the nation of its most decadent excesses. On the top of the list was Christmas and all its festive trappings. Cromwell went even so far as to ban the singing of Christmas carols. But fortunately, with Dickens' success with A Christmas Carol occurring right around the same time as the invention of the commercial Christmas card, so good timing there, and... The 19th century businesses were looking to create a new commercial holiday because any holiday that's built around commerce and uh, money is going to last for a long time. Uh, Christmas saw a resurgence in Britain as the editor of the publications Household Words and later All the Year Round with works like The Chimes and The Haunted Man, Dickens would go on to release a number of other Christmas ghost stories, making him basically the godfather of the tradition, which sounds really cool. This was a tradition that would have a stronghold on the Christmas holiday throughout the 19th century. And so, you know, ghost stories is one of those things that people don't really think about anymore telling. I, I hope it's a tradition that can be brought back. I know there are a lot of people online that are calling for its return. So back then, with this surge in interest, came ghost stories that basically uh, what British Christmas is known for. Uh, E.F. Benson, Algernon Blackwood, J.H. Riddle, those guys laid the groundwork for 20th century tales by A.M. Burridge and M.R. James, who are two of the uh, most uh, respected ghost stories uh, tellers there are. Um, Jerome came Jerome, English writer and humorist, wrote in his 1891 collection, Told After Supper, Nothing satisfies us on Christmas Eve but to hear each other tell authentic anecdotes about specters. It is a genial, festive season, and we love to muse upon graves and dead bodies and murders and blood. That's, uh, (laughs) sounds like a guy you want at your party. 
One of these greats when it comes to ghost stories is Alfred McClellan Burge, better known as A.M. Burge. Uh, he was a British writer noted in his time as an author of fiction for boys, which he published under the pseudonym Frank Leland. After his father died in 1906, Burridge began writing fiction, partly to support his family, with his main market uh, being British pulp magazines. Um, after his death, however, Burridge became best known for his ghost stories. Uh, noted editor and literary researcher Richard Lawrence Dalby ranked Burge as one of the finest English ghost story writers alongside E.F. Benson, H. Russell Wakefield, and M.R. James. And that's uh, some great company to be a part of. So what I want to do for the month of December is go back and explore these ghost stories from, from the past and, you know... Share them with with the public and share them with the podcast listeners because there are a lot of these stories that that I haven't read and they're wonderful and I want to help as much as I can resurrect the tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas because I think it's a fascinating time for it to happen because, you know, Charles Dickens basically paved the way for most of us in what we know of of ghost stories with A Christmas Carol. Everyone that I know of has at least heard of that story and Charles Dickens himself. So use that as a uh, a starting point and and explore some of these other authors because they are, uh, if not just as good, sometimes better in their stories. So what I want to read today for this podcast, one of the uh, most famous stories that A.M. Burridge wrote was called Smee. Uh, it was part of a collection in the book uh, Someone in the Room in 1931. You can buy a reprinted copy on Amazon, and it's under the title A.M. Burridge, Smee, and Other Stories, Classics from the Master of Horror. I am still hoping to, because I am kind of a book, one of those book weirdos, I would love to own a uh, first edition of this book. I've found a few of them, and they are a couple hundred dollars each at minimum. Um, so maybe not now, but eventually I would love to have a library full of, of first editions from books that I just absolutely adore. And this looks like it may be one of them. So I'm going to uh, read Smee by A.M. Burridge, and I hope that uh, if you start the podcast from this point, you can share it with uh, your your family around the fireplace or just around the dinner table or, you know, after dinner when we're all hallucinating from uh, eating too much food, hopefully. Uh, this year's been nuts, but uh, let's start a new tradition with ghost stories. What better but better year than to do that for uh, than 2020? So uh, here we go. Smee by A.M. Burridge. No, said Jackson with a deprecatory smile. I'm sorry. I don't want to upset your game. I shan't be doing that because you'll have plenty without me, but I'm not playing any games of hide-and-seek. It was Christmas Eve, and we were a party of fourteen with just the proper leavening of youth. We had dined well. It was the season for childish games, and we were all in the mood for playing them. All that is except Jackson. When somebody suggested hide-and-seek, there was rapturous and almost unanimous approval. His was the one dissentient voice. It was not like Jackson to spoil sport or refuse to do as others wanted. Somebody asked him if he were feeling seedy. 
No, he answered. I feel perfectly fit, thanks. But, he added with a smile, which softened without retracting the flat refusal, I'm not playing hide-and-seek. One of us asked him why not. He hesitated for some seconds before replying. I sometimes go and stay at a house where a girl was killed through playing hide-and-seek in the dark. She didn't know the house very well. There was a servant's staircase with a door to it. When she was pursued, she opened the door and jumped into what she must have thought was one of the bedrooms, and she broke her neck at the bottom of the stairs. We all looked concerned, and Mrs. Fernley said, How awful! And you were there when it happened? Jackson shook his head very gravely. No, he said, but I was there when something else happened. Something worse. I shouldn't have thought anything could be worse. This was, said Jackson, and shuddered visibly, or so it seemed to me. I think he wanted to tell the story and was angling for encouragement. A few requests which may have seemed to him to lack urgency, he affected to ignore and went off at a tangent. I wonder if any of you have played a game called Smee. It's a great improvement on the ordinary game of hide-and-seek. The name derives from the ungrammatical colloquialism, it's me. You might care to play if you're going to play a game of that sort. Let me tell you the rules. Every player is presented with a sheet of paper. All the sheets are blank except one, which is written Smee. Nobody knows who is Smee except Smee himself, or herself as the case may be. The lights are then turned out and Smee slips from the room and goes off to hide. And after an interval, the other players go off in search without knowing whom they are actually in search of. One player meeting another challenges with the word Smee, and the other player, if not the one concerned, answers Smee. The real Smee makes no answer when challenged, and the second player remains quietly by him. Presently, they will be discovered by a third player, who, having challenged and received no answer, will link up with the first two. This goes on until all the players have formed a chain, and the last to join is marked down for a forfeit. It's a good noisy romping game, and in a big house it often takes a long time to complete the chain. You might care to try it, and I'll pay my forfeit and smoke one of Tim's excellent cigars here by the fire until you get tired of it. I remarked that it sounded a good game and asked Jackson if he had played it himself. Yes, he answered. I played it in the house I was telling you about. And she was there, the girl who broke? No, no, Miss Fernley interrupted. He told us he wasn't there when it happened. Jackson considered. I don't know if she was there or not. I'm afraid she was. I know that there were 13 of us and there ought only to have been 12. And I'll swear that I didn't know her name. Or I think I should have gone off clean off my head when I heard that whisper in the dark. No, you don't catch me playing that game or any like it anymore. It spoiled my nerve quite a while, and I can't afford to take long holidays. Besides, it saves a lot of trouble and inconvenience to own up at once to being a coward. Tim Vouch, the best of hosts, smiled around at us, and in that smile there was a meaning which is something vulgarly expressed by the slow closing of an eye. There's a story coming, he announced. There's certainly a story of sorts, said Jackson, but whether it's coming or not, he paused and shrugged his shoulders. Well, you're going to pay a forfeit instead of playing? Please, but have a heart and let me down lightly. 
It's not just a sheer cussedness on my part. Payment in advance, said Tim, ensures honesty and promotes good feeling. You are therefore sentenced to tell the story here and now. And here follows Jackson's story, unrevised by me and passed on without comment to a wider public. Some of you I know have run across the Sangstons. Christopher Sangston and his wife, I mean. They're distant connections of mine, at least Violet Sangston is. About eight years ago, they bought a house between the North and South Downs on the Surrey and Sussex border. And five years ago, they invited me to come and spend Christmas with them. It was a fairly old house. I couldn't say exactly of what period. And it certainly deserved the epithet rambling. It wasn't a particularly big house, but the original architect, whoever he may have been, had not concerned himself with economizing in space, and at first you could get lost in it quite easily. Well, I went down for that Christmas, assured by Violet's letter that I knew most of my fellow guests, and that the two or three who might be strangers to me were all lambs. Unfortunately, I'm one of the world's workers, and couldn't get away until Christmas Eve, although the other members of the party had assembled on the preceding day. Even then, I had to cut it rather fine to be there for dinner on my first night. They were all dressing when I arrived, and I had to go straight to my room and waste no time. I may even have kept dinner waiting a bit, for I was last down, and it was announced within a minute of my entering the drawing room. There was just time to say hello to everybody I knew, to be briefly introduced to the two or three I didn't know, and then I had to give my arm to Mrs. Gorman. I mentioned this as the reason why I didn't catch the name of a tall, dark, handsome girl I hadn't met before. Everything was rather hurried, and I am always bad at catching people's names. She looked cold and clever and rather forbiding, the sort of girl who gives the impression of knowing all about men, and the more she knows of them, the less she likes them. I felt that I wasn't going to hit it off with this particular lamb of violets, but she looked interesting all the same, and I wondered who she was. I didn't ask because I was pretty sure of hearing somebody address her by name before very long. Unluckily, though, I was a long way off her at table, and as Mrs. Gorman was at the top of her form that night, I soon forgot to worry about who she might be. Mrs. Gorman is one of the most amusing women I know, an outrageous but quite innocent flirt with a very sprightly wit which isn't always unkind. She can think half a dozen moves ahead in conversation, just as an expert can in a game of chess. We were soon sparring, or rather, I was covering against the ropes, and I quite forgot to ask her in an undertone the name of the cold, proud beauty. The lady on the other side of me was a stranger, or had been until a few minutes since, and I didn't think of seeking information in that quarter. There was a round dozen of us, including the Sangstons themselves, and we were all young or trying to be. The Sangstons themselves were the oldest member of the party, and their son Reggie, in his last year at Marlborough, must have been the youngest. When there was talk of playing games after dinner, it was he who suggested Smee. He told us how to play it just as I've described it to you. His father chipped in as soon as we all understood what was going to be required of us. If there are any games of that sort going on in the house, he said, for goodness sake, be careful of the back stairs on the first floor landing. There's a door to them, and I've often meant to take it down. In the dark, anybody who doesn't know the house very well might think they were walking into a room. 
A girl actually did break her neck on those stairs about 10 years ago when the Anstys lived here. I asked how it happened. Oh, said Sangston, there was a party here one Christmas time and they were playing hide and seek as you proposed doing. This girl was one of the hiders. She heard somebody coming, ran along the passage to get away, and opened the door of what she thought was a bedroom, evidently with the intention of hiding behind it while her pursuer went past. Unfortunately, it was the door leading to the back stairs, and that staircase is as straight and almost as steep as the shaft of a pit. She was dead when they picked her up. We all promise for our own sakes to be careful. Mrs. Gorman said that she was sure nothing could happen to her since she was insured by three different firms, and her next of kin was a brother whose consistent ill luck was a byword in the family. You see, none of us had known the unfortunate girl, and as the tragedy was ten years old, there was no need to pull long faces about it. Well, we started the game almost immediately after dinner. The men allowed themselves only five minutes before joining the ladies, and then young Reggie Sangston went round and assured himself that the lights were out all over the house, except in the servants' quarters and in the drawing room where we assembled. We then got busy with twelve sheets of paper, which he twisted into pellets and shook up between his hands before passing them round. Eleven of them were blank, and Smee was written on the twelfth. The person drawing the latter was the one who had to hide. I looked and saw that mine was a blank. A moment later, out went the electric lights, and in the darkness, I heard somebody get up and creep to the door. After a minute or so, somebody gave a signal, and we made a rush for the door. I, for one, hadn't the least idea which of the party was Smee. For five or ten minutes, we were all rushing up and down passages and in and out of rooms, challenging one another and answering, Smee? Smee! After a bit, the allurums and excursions died down, and I guessed that Smee was found. Eventually, I found a chain of people all sitting still and holding their breath on some narrow stairs leading up to a row of attics. I hastily joined it, having challenged and been answered with silence, and presently two more stragglers arrived, each racing the other to avoid being last. Sangston was one of them. Indeed, it was he who was marked down for a forfeit, and after a little while, he remarked in an undertone, I think we're all here now, aren't we? He struck a match, looked up the shaft of the staircase, and began to count. It wasn't hard, although we just about filled the staircase, for we were sitting each a step or two above the next, and all our heads were visible. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, he concluded, and then laughed. Dash it all, that's one too many. The match had burned out, and he struck another and began to count. He got as far as twelve, and then uttered an exclamation. There are 13 people here, he exclaimed. I haven't counted myself yet. Oh, nonsense, I laughed. You probably began with yourself, and now you want to count yourself twice. Out came his son's electric torch, giving a brighter and steadier light, and we all began to count. Of course we numbered 12. Sangston laughed. Well, he said, I could have sworn I counted 13 twice. From halfway up the stairs came Violet Sangston's voice with a little nervous trill in it. I thought there was somebody sitting two steps above me. Have you moved up, Captain Ransom? Ramson said that he hadn't. He also said that he thought there was somebody sitting between Violet and himself. Just for a moment, there was an uncomfortable something in the air, a little cold ripple which touched us all. For that little moment, it seemed to all of us, 
I think that something odd and unpleasant had happened and was liable to happen again. Then we laughed at ourselves and at one another, and we were comfortable once more. There were only twelve of us, and there could only have been twelve of us, and there was no argument about it. Still laughing, we trooped back to the drawing room to begin again. This time I was Smee, and Violet Sangston ran me to earth while I was still looking for a hiding place. That round didn't last long, and we were a chain of twelve within two or three minutes. Afterwards, there was a short interval. Violet wanted a wrap fetched for her, and her husband went up to get it from her room. He was no sooner gone than Reggie pulled me by the sleeve. I saw that he was looking pale and sick. Quick, he whispered, why father's out of the way. Take me into the smoke room and give me a brandy of whiskey or something. Outside the room, I asked him what was the matter, but he didn't answer at first, and I thought it better to douse him first and ask questions later. So I mixed him a pretty dark-complexioned brandy and soda, which he drank at a gulp and then began to puff as if he had been running. I've had rather a turn, he said to me with a sheepish grin. What's the matter? I don't know. You were Shmi just now, weren't you? Well, of course I didn't know who Shmi was. And while Mother and the others ran into the West Wing and found you, I turned east. There's a deep clothes cupboard in my bedroom. I'd marked it down as a good place to hide when it was my turn and I had an idea that Smee might be there. I opened the door in the dark, felt round, and touched somebody's hand. Smee, I whispered, and not getting any answer, I thought I had found Smee. Well, I don't know how it was, but an odd, creepy feeling came over me. I can't describe it, but I felt that something was wrong. So I turned on my electric torch, and there was nobody there. Now, I swear I touched a hand, and I was filling up the doorway of the cupboard at the time, so nobody could get out past me. He puffed again. What do you make of it, he asked. You imagine that you had touched a hand, I answered, naturally enough. He uttered a short laugh. Of course I knew you were going to say that, he said. I must have imagined it, mustn't I? He paused and swallowed. I mean, it couldn't have been anything else but my imagination, could it? I assured him that it couldn't, meaning what I said, and he accepted this but rather with the philosophy of one who knows he is right but doesn't expect to be believed. We returned together to the drawing room where, by that time, they were all waiting for us and ready to start again. It may have been my imagination, although I'm almost sure it wasn't, but it seemed to me that all the enthusiasm for the game had suddenly melted like a white frost in strong sunlight. If anybody had suggested another game, I'm sure we should all have been grateful and abandoned Smee. Only nobody did. Nobody seemed to like to. I, for one, and I can speak for some of the others, too, was oppressed with the feeling that there was something wrong. I couldn't have said what I thought was wrong. Indeed, I didn't think about it at all. But somehow, all the sparkle had gone out of the fun, and hovering over my mind like a shadow was the warning of some sixth sense which told me that there was an influence in the house which was neither sane, sound, nor healthy. Why did I feel like that? Because Sangston had counted 13 of us instead of 12? And his son had thought he had touched somebody in an empty cupboard? No, there was more in it than just that. One would have laughed at such things in the ordinary way, and it was just that feeling of something being wrong which stopped me from laughing. Well, we started again, and when we went into pursuit of the unknown Smee, we were as noisy as ever. But it seemed to me that most of us were acting. 
Frankly, for no reason other than one I've given you, we'd stopped enjoying the game. I had an instinct to hunt with the main pack, but after a few minutes during which no Smee had been found, my instinct to play winning games and be first if possible set me searching on my own account. And on the first floor of the west wing, following the wall which was actually the shell of the house, I blundered against a pair of human knees. I put out my hand and touched a soft, heavy curtain. Then I knew where I was. There were tall, deeply recessed windows with seats along the landing, and curtains over the recesses to the ground. Somebody was sitting in a corner of this window seat behind the curtain. Aha! I had caught Smee. So I drew the curtain aside, stepped in, and touched the bare arm of a woman. It was a dark night outside, and moreover, the window was not only curtained, but a blind hung down to where the bottom panes joined up with the frame. Between the curtain and the window, it was as dark as the plague of Egypt. I could not have seen my hand held six inches before my face, much less the woman sitting in the corner. Smee, I whispered. I had no answer. Smee? When challenge does not answer. So I sat beside her, first in the field, to await the others. Then, having settled myself, I leaned over to her and whispered, Who is it? What's your name, Smee? And out of the darkness beside me, the whisper came back, Brenda Ford. I didn't know the name, but because I didn't know it, I guessed at once who she was. The tall, pale, dark girl was the only person in the house I didn't know by name. Ergo, my companion was the tall, pale, dark girl. It seemed rather intriguing to be there with her, shut in between a heavy curtain and a window, and I rather wondered whether she was enjoying the game we were all playing. Somehow she hadn't seemed to me to be one of the romping sort. I muttered one or two commonplace questions to her and had no answer. Smee is a game of silence. Smee and the person or persons who have found Smee are supposed to keep quiet to make it hard for the others. But there was nobody else about, and it occurred to me that she was playing the game a little too much to the letter. I spoke again and got no answer, and then I began to be annoyed. She was of that cold, superior type which affects to despise men. She didn't like me, and she was sheltering behind the rules of a game for children to be discourteous. Well, if she didn't like sitting there with me, I certainly didn't want to be sitting there with her. I half turned from her and began to hope that we should both be discovered without much more delay. Having discovered that I didn't like being there alone with her, it was queer how soon I found myself hating it, and that for a reason very different from the one which had at first whetted my annoyance. The girl I had met for the first time before dinner, and seen diagonally across the table, had a sort of of cold charm about her which had attracted while it had half angered me. For the girl who was with me, imprisoned in the opaque darkness between the curtain and the window, I felt no attraction at all. It was so very much the reverse that I should have wondered at myself if, after the first shock of the discovery that she had suddenly become repellent to me, I had room in my mind for anything besides the consciousness that her close presence was an increasing horror to me. It came upon me just as quickly as I've uttered the words. My flesh suddenly shrank from her as you see a strip of gelatin shrink and wither before the heat of a fire. That feeling of something being wrong had come back to me. 
but multiplied to an extent which turned foreboding into actual terror. I firmly believe that I should have got up and run if I had not felt that at my first movement she would have divined my intention and compelled me to stay, by some means of which I could not bear to think. The memory of having touched her bare arm made me wince and draw in my lips. I prayed that somebody else would come along soon. My prayer was answered. Light footfalls sounded on the landing. Somebody on the other side of the curtain brushed against my knees. The curtain was drawn aside and a woman's hand, fumbling in the darkness, presently rested on my shoulder. Smee? whispered a voice which I instantly recognized as Mrs. Gorman's. Of course she received no answer. She came and settled down beside me with a rustle, and I can't describe the sense of relief she brought me. It's Tony, isn't it? she whispered. Yes, I whispered back. You're not Smee, are you? No, she's on my other side. She reached a hand across me, and I heard one of her nails scratch the surface of a woman's silk gown. Hello, Smee. How are you? Who are you? Oh, is it against the rules to talk? Never mind. Tony, we'll break the rules. Do you know, Tony, this game is beginning to irk me a little. I hope they're not going to run it to death by playing it all evening. I'd like to play some game where we can all be together in the same room with a nice bright fire. Same here, I agreed fervently. Can't you suggest something when we go down? There's something rather uncanny in this particular amusement. I can't quite shed the delusion that there's somebody in this game who oughtn't to be in it at all. That was just how I had been feeling, but I didn't say so. But for my part, the worst of my qualms were now gone. The arrival of Mrs. Gorman had dissipated them. We sat on talking, wondering from time to time when the rest of the party would arrive. I don't know how long elapsed before we heard a clatter of feet on the landing and young Reggie's voice shouting, Hello, hello there. Anybody there? Yes, I answered. Mrs. Gorman with you? Yes. Well, you're a nice pair. You've both forfeited. We've all been waiting for you for hours. Why, you haven't found Smee yet, I objected. You haven't, you mean. I happen to have been Smee myself. But Smee's here with us, I cried. Yes, agreed Mrs. Gorman. The curtain was stripped aside, and in a moment we were blinking into the eye of Reggie's electric torch. I looked at Mrs. Gorman and then on my other side. Between me and the wall there was an empty space on the window seat. I stood up at once and wish I hadn't, for I found myself sick and dizzy. There was somebody there, I maintained, because I touched her. So did I, said Mrs. Gorman, in a voice which had lost its steadiness and I don't see how she could have got up and gone without our knowing it. Reggie uttered a queer, shaken laugh. He, too, had an unpleasant experience that evening. Somebody's been playing the goat, he remarked. Coming down? We were not very popular when we arrived in the drawing room. Reggie, rather tactlessly, gave it out that he had found us sitting on a window seat behind the curtain. I taxed the tall, dark girl with having pretended to be Smee, and afterwards slipping away. She denied it. After which we settled down and played other games. Smee was done with for the evening, and I for one was glad of it. Some long while later, during an interval, Sangston told me, if I wanted a drink, to go into the smoke room and help myself. I went, and he presently followed me. I could see that he was rather peeved with me, and the reason came out during the following minute or two. It seemed that, in his opinion, if I must sit out and flirt with Mrs. Gorman, 
in circumstances which would have been considered highly compromising in his young days, I needn't do it during a round game and keep everybody waiting for us. But there was somebody else there, I protested, somebody pretending to be Smee. I believe it was that tall, dark girl, Mrs. Ford, although she denied it. She even whispered her name to me. Sangston stared at me and nearly dropped his glass. Mrs. Who? he shouted. Brenda Ford, she told me her name was. Sangston put down his glass and laid a hand on my shoulder. Look here, old man, he said. I don't mind a joke, but don't let it get too far. We don't want all the women in the house getting hysterical. Brenda Ford is the name of the girl who broke her neck on the stairs playing hide-and-seek here ten years ago.